Well, this week began with Martin Luther King Day, Monday. I was listening to a lecture uh, commemorating his work this week that a couple different friends sent me. And I was struck by the fact, I've heard it before, um, but I've never really thought much about it, uh, the fact that Martin Luther King Jr., when he was assassinated, was thought by some to be the most hated man in America. And it's surprising for a lot of us, at least those of us who weren't alive in that moment, especially considering how universally beloved Martin Luther King Jr. seems to be today. There are certainly those who disparage his reputation, point to his personal moral failings, or those who disagree with this or that economic policy that he put forward in the end. And of course, there are still those who would take umbrage with his vision for racial equality. They are still present among us, even in the church. But in general, it seems the vast majority of Americans today would consider Martin Luther King Jr. a man before his time, someone who got it right. But it wasn't so in his day. In 1963, his favorability rating hovered around 50%. That's in 63. But by the year of his murder, in 1968, just five years later, his favorability rating had dropped dramatically. According to a Harris poll, his unfavorability rating reached 75% of Americans surveyed. 75%. Now some despised him, thought unfavorably of him because of his peace, love-driven civil rights campaign. They thought it was moving too slow. Others thought unfavorably about him because they thought his civil rights campaign was moving too quickly. Some rejected him because he himself rejected the Vietnam War, others because he marched with labor unions and advocated for economic change. But for whatever reason, today, we tend to look at Martin Luther King Jr. and see a prophet of sorts, a hero of social justice, but in his own life, he was considered a problem at best. The vast majority of Americans could not see that what he offered was what was so desperately needed. 1950s and 60s. We'll be spending our time in Isaiah again this morning. It's in your bulletin if you want to follow along. I suppose if you're watching online that it was on the screen earlier, but you can find it in your Bibles. Isaiah chapter 53. And in that reading, we heard of one very much like this. One who comes to save, to bring good to his people, but one whom his people did not recognize. One who came to bring peace, but was rejected for it. Now remember, the great wave that repeats itself in Isaiah, judgment, desolation, hope. Israel rejected God, faced God's judgment unto their total desolation, and yet God was not done with his people. God would bring restoration even into the rebellious hearts, and so the desolation always breaks into hope. And this morning begins again with that breaking, that breaking of the wave from desolation into hope. Isaiah is declaring the hope of God's restoration, of God's salvation for Israel. But even he finds the way in which God will save to be surprising, even unbelievable. Look at verse 1. Who has believed what he's heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord. That's the metaphor 
for the salvation of God, the power of God to reach down and rescue his people, the arm that strikes the enemy of God's people, that protects them, that provides for them. Isaiah says, declare the hope of the, Lord, the world, but who can believe it? We proclaim the salvation of our God, his arm mighty to save, but to whom has it been revealed? Who can see it? Isaiah himself, the great prophet, seems to find the salvation of God to be unrecognizable, even unbelievable. Now, why is this? What makes the salvation of God so hard to recognize? Well, Isaiah then sets out to describe the salvation, helps us understand why he would find it confusing. Because the salvation, as we have come to expect, looks like a person. And in the past Isaiah has described this person, this personal salvation, as a king who would come to rescue Israel. Last week, Luke described it, him as a servant who would bring justice to Israel and to the world. At other times, we saw the salvation described by Isaiah as the coming of God himself to walk amongst his people. But this time, Isaiah declares that the salvation of God is a man who suffers, who suffers. And that's different than what we've seen up until this point. Strange. Look at verse 2. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. No form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. Nothing about him that's special, that seems like it might be salvific or powerful to save. Instead, verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Isaiah declares the salvation of God, the great arm of the Lord, will be a man of sorrows. A man that we could hardly recognize. One that would not look, we would not even look at if we had the option to look away. This is what makes the salvation of God almost impossible to believe in. This is what makes it almost impossible to recognize. Because we could understand God sending a king to bring peace and healing. We could understand God sending a servant who would come and judge the lands. We can even understand, at least a little, the idea that God might come to earth to set things straight. But a man who suffers. That seems like the antithesis of salvation. The opposite of victory. How could a suffering man bring salvation? It seems unbelievable to Isaiah in his time. And it seemed unbelievable in the time of Jesus too. We might be able to look back and say, you know, it's so obvious that this is the Savior. How could they not see it? Some of you may have heard evangelists trying to proclaim the gospel in terms like that. It's so obvious. Can't you see that this is the Lord? But of course, in his own day, they couldn't see it. His own friends abandoned him during his arrest and trial. And when he's killed, none of them expect him to be raised. They all figure that the revolution has failed. The Messiah has proved to be nothing at all. Because it was impossible for them to see how a Savior could save by suffering. No king receives his dominion by dying. It is simply unfathomable. It's unbelievable. It doesn't make sense to us. 
It seems unbelievable today, too, which is why we shouldn't be surprised when people do not find Christianity believable. It is, frankly, hard to believe, even for the great prophets, even for the disciples, especially if you haven't encountered Jesus yourself. It seems almost impossible that someone would believe that God would save through the suffering of a man. And even when you have encountered Jesus yourself, as I have in prayer and in scripture and in worship, even still, it strikes me as unbelievable quite often. But Isaiah says, this man, this suffering Man is in fact the arm of the Lord. He is the power of God to save. The power of God for salvation. Now how can this be? How can the suffering of one man produce the salvation of others? Even the salvation of us. Well, Isaiah goes on to tell us. While we failed to see the suffering servant as the salvation of God, he was in fact suffering for us. Suffering in our stead, in our place. Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us. salvation of the Lord has come, Isaiah says, but no one recognized it because it looked weak, it looked foolish, it looked like suffering. But this suffering was not the absence of God's salvation, the absence of God's rescuing power. It was the very presence of the power of God rescuing us. It was the very substance of God's salvation. Because what this servant was carrying, he was carrying so that we would not have to carry it. What the servant was bearing, he was bearing that we might be cut free from that burden. What he was suffering, he was suffering that we might be healed and made whole. You see, at the very moment that it looked like God was not saving, not even able to save, he was saving. He was able to save. At the very moment that it looked like God had failed, God was perfecting his plan. He was accomplishing his purposes. And still humanity counted it of low esteem. This is like MLK, suffering for the good while despised by the nation. But it's more than that. It's bigger than that because here the suffering is not simply the byproduct of seeking the good of a people, In Isaiah, and so in Christ Jesus, the suffering itself accomplishes the salvation. The suffering is not the byproduct of the salvation process. It is, in fact, the process of salvation itself. It's not what happened because Jesus came to teach and to do good and to proclaim the truth and to lead a new way of being human. And so he's killed for it. It is, in fact, the way by which new humans might be made the way in which we might be restored to God. This is the boy who gives up the kidney to save his brother who needs it. This is the soldier that leaps on the grenade. This is the family of the Charleston Nine, those 
uh, black Bible study members killed by the white supremacist Dylan Roof several years ago. The families of the Charleston Nine declaring their forgiveness, not seeking vengeance, bearing that pain themselves that the other might be freed from their guilt. This is the kind of rescue that Isaiah describes. One that looks like suffering, but is at that very moment, salvation. A salvation that humanity cannot recognize as such, but nevertheless, salvation. And that is hard for us to believe. Even still, the suffering of Christ looks weak to us. You may have heard the politician last year who joked that Jesus would have been more successful if he and his followers had simply had more automatic weapons. At best, that's a repulsive joke. Ignoring the work of Jesus. But it more likely reveals her own failure to see the nature of the gospel itself. His friends, his death, his suffering was not a failure. It was not the failure of God's purposes in him. Friends, by his wounds we are healed. Not by his teaching as profound as it was. Not by his miracles as magnificent as they were. By his wounds. By his wounds we are healed. While we despised him, he took our sin and shame, our guilts and our grief on his shoulders. He was accused and condemned. He was stripped and whipped and hung on a tree. And this was not simply the result of his saving work. It was the work itself. This man on a cross was the very mighty arm of God, saving you and saving me. And as strange as that may seem, as incredible, as unbelievable as it appears, it is the gospel. Declared in Genesis and Exodus and Isaiah and the New Testament and by every Christian church today. This is the gospel, that he would take what we deserve, that we might have what he offers. And that's good news. Amen.